Welcome to Shout Your Cause with Sally Hendrick, a digital magazine where you can get found, get heard, and get inspired with content that challenges us to be globally minded. Our focus is on raising awareness around social justice issues, cultural differences, and to bring you the people dedicating their lives to tackling challenging topics as their way of giving back. Let us be your advocate to make your voices heard around the world. Hey everybody, it's Sally Hendrick with Shout Your Cause. Thank you for listening again to another episode. Today we're going to be talking about money and <laughs> I've got a TikToker here. Uh, her, her nickname over on TikTok is at money is stupid, which really caught my eye by the way. And <laughs> yeah, and this is M. M, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Sally. I'm really like excited to be here and talk about all this important stuff because yes I I really do believe money is stupid <laughs> <laughs> you know you know money is necessary but money can be stupid as well and I think that because you're that came up and some of the concepts that you were talking about and demonstrating on your account uh, were really out of the box from what I um, have known I am so interested in learning more but before we go into you know your topics, Tell me a little bit more about yourself and what it is you're doing. Absolutely. So yeah, in terms of the handle, what I find funny about money is stupid is no matter like where you are on the political spectrum or what your situation is, I have found that most people agree with like just that statement in isolation. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I do feel like there is a unifying um, thing there that, I think that all of us know on some level that like the current financial system like isn't the way that we want it to be, or maybe it's not best serving us. Um, I grew up in a very wealthy family in a wealthy neighborhood um, and coming from that and then like entering the quote unquote real world. I remember one of my first TikToks I ever made, I was talking about how I felt like I grew up in a simulation because it was like that like idyllic, like super homogenous suburb of the nineties. And like, as I started to move farther away from that, whether it was going to college after that, like working um, in education in various ways, like I taught adult English to new immigrants. I did that for a while. I taught theater to kids. Then I taught elementary school, ESL, like English as a new language um, for four years in the New York City public school system. And now I work for a nonprofit and I help adults with disabilities. And throughout like all of those jobs and just all of my life experiences, I'm always kind of like reflecting and comparing back to like how I grew up. And particularly when I worked in the New York City public school system in like Title I schools, like quote unquote, high need, low income, you know, underfunded schools and like reflecting on the schooling that I had as a kid, like just seeing the juxtaposition and that really stark contrast mm -hmm. <laughs> really like hit home the wealth inequality that we experience. And then I think when the pandemic hit, it just really accelerated all of that for me. And it made me really want to refine my political beliefs. And when I tell you that I have read more books in the past year and a half than I have read in the past 10 years, I'm just like highly motivated to learn about what's going on, why it's happening and what like solutions have already been envisioned <laughs> that are out there. And I'm very interested in learning about those solutions. So all of that learning, I kind of process on TikTok and it's been really great to like, it helps me process. And like, I love reading people's comments and, you know, meeting people and having conversations because it's really like, it's been like a classroom for me. I love it because I feel the same way. When I got on TikTok last year, it was kind of to spy on my youngest a little bit just to see <laughs> what was going on over there. My youngest is into cosplay and anime and things like that. And it makes a lot of really cool creative videos. 
And so I was just doing that. But then next thing you know, I start getting sucked into it. And I'm like, oh, wait a second. I'm actually learning some things about different parts of the country that I didn't really understand the perspective of. And, and I thought, you know, this could be really great research for me. And at first I thought for my marketing company, but then when it came to the COVID stats, I used to be an actuary. I was an actuary for 20 oh, cool. years. That's and a so, career I'm very interested in actually. It's so <laughs> fascinating well, to me. <laughs> it, it, it is fascinating. And the knowing how to do the statistical analysis and to bring in the economic factors and the behavioral factors of people and then the financial concerns of corporations, putting all that together, you really do learn a lot about what goes on in the world from that corporate standpoint. Right. But then you look at what's happening to people on the ground and it's like, what are we doing here? It's, it's almost like corporations are have moved into this status of we we control everything and we have this machine going and you the happy worker are here working for us and even though it's not a communist government situation going on it's almost like that's how it is with the corporations and employees with this huge cogwheel of i don't know economy running through and they they control everything Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with they control everything. The way I see it is like, I think that corporations, and it's not just me that thinks this, I think that corporations are more powerful than countries at this point. A lot of them are like, just in terms of just net worth and like economic reach, they're more powerful than any country at this point. Yeah, Um, You know, when we talk about corporations like BlackRock or Amazon, you know, they're massive and their reach is is really profound and it's not just geographical it's you know also we've kind of shifted from geographical control to digital control right you know amazon um amazon's internet service controls most of the internet so like even if you're on a website you know that has nothing to do with amazon you're most likely on a website that's hosted by amazon and they've like courted the u.s government about hosting some of their right platforms through amazon web services so it's like the reach of corporations is is really profound and i think that um you know i know you said the word communism i think the way i interpret communism is like i I think that communism predicted this like certainly like from a marxist perspective what marxist is more along the lines with socialism a lot of people like to put it all in the same bucket but there is a difference yeah, yeah. Just thinking from a Marxist perspective, like, you know, I think I and I'm not an expert on Marxism by any means, but, um, you know, the, the whole the whole premise that like a small group of people control everything. And, right, <laughs> you know, that's that was predicted years ago that it would keep getting worse and worse. And we keep we keep proving that to be true. And it, and it doesn't seem to it seems like there's no stopping it. <laughs> Turn what you know into what you do. Join the platform with the most ways to monetize what you know, whether it's online courses, coaching, memberships, podcasts, newsletters, communities, or more. Kajabi gives you all the tools you need to build, market, and sell it with just a few clicks. Sign up at sallyhendrick.com forward slash Kajabi. That's K-A-J-A-B-I felt like what you described in growing up was like this Stepford life where everything's (laughs) the same. I don't know if you remember that the movie back in the days or the TV show Stepford Wives, but it was, um, it was like everybody was programmed to be the same. They all had the same houses. They all had the same look, the same clothing, the same hairstyle, you know, everything was the same. The, the juxtaposition of the man versus the wife in the home and the children was all the same and everybody was the same. <laughs> right. Anything so, any different, it was like, what is that? You know, little boxes, <laughs> little boxes made of ticky tacky. Yeah. I, yes, yes. I've never, <laughs> I've never seen the show, but I, but I know, I know the, the main idea and yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I've definitely grew up in the suburbs for sure. I mean, you know, I also grew up in like the suburbs that were like right outside of New York City. So it's like, you know, just the money there is like out of control. 
Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So when it comes to universal basic income, I've noticed uh, some of your TikToks will talk about that. Can you explain what that is? Yes. <laughs> I'm always like, how do I condense it? I think, um, so I, I, I want to start by saying like, a few years ago, I didn't know anything about universal basic income. I, I had never even like heard those words. And I've just learned a ton about it because it, it is the financial solution that makes the most sense to me of anything I've ever heard proposed. When I heard this, I was like, this makes sense. Just something about it like clicked um, in my logistics brain. <laughs> so I like had to follow that. And I first learned about it. I read the book. Um, Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. David Graeber is an anthropologist. He self-identified as a anarchist. Um, and he has unfortunately passed away. But at the end of his book, he talks about universal basic income. And that's what kind of inspired me to start learning about it. A universal basic income is a system in which everybody, usually it has to be within the constraints of you know, a country. It's like uh -huh. everybody in the country would get a certain amount of money on a regular basis. No questions asked forever. So, you know, it could be like everyone, this is just hypothetical, everyone in the United States gets $2,000 a month, no matter who you are. There's no means testing. Means testing would be like, you have to apply to qualify or you have to be in some sort of group to qualify. If it's a universal program, it means everybody gets that money, no matter what. And you know, that, that brings up a lot of questions for people <laughs> because a lot of people, yeah, it does. It's so radically different from what we experience right now that it's like, it's, it's jarring to hear that. And it's like, it takes a lot of like processing to be like, and you, you're like, wait, but what about, but what about, what about, you know, and I've been trying to like learn the answers to those questions and help answer people's questions in the best way that I can. I mean, I'm wondering what you're thinking right now. Like, what are your initial questions when you hear that. So if everybody has $2,000, then, I mean, I'm assuming that is listed to cover, you know, basic expenses so that nobody starves, nobody, you know, everybody has food and shelter. Um, but when it comes to beyond that, does it change are there requirements for it? Are, you know, what are some of the stipulations that go with it? Um, is this only for certain communities or, you know, like people with disabilities or is this, you know, what are the stipulations around it? Cause I know a lot of people have questions about that. Yeah. So the vision for like a truly progressive universal basic income is that there are no stipulations. So everybody gets it. As long as you are, are in the country, <laughs> you get it like there's, there's no stipulations and no strings. And that's why it becomes a very powerful way to like fundamentally change the financial system. Um, it can't, if it were implemented, it couldn't be implemented in a vacuum. It would have to be implemented alongside housing reform, things mm -hmm. like rent control or like a percentage housing system so that because otherwise, you know, you would think, well, if everybody's just getting more money, then landlords will just raise rent or, you know, mortgage payments right. and then, you know, so you have to prevent that, that from happening. Right. Um, we need housing reform anyway. So, you know, I see this as like part of something that all goes together. I also think it should go hand in hand with universal health care. And, you know, if you have universal health care and you get a monthly stipend and, you know, you have affordable housing, that pretty much covers it, right? Um, the way that you pay for this, which is usually something people think about as well, is by offsetting the costs with taxation. So what's the other big thing we need to do right now? Tax the wealthy, right? <laughs> we right. need to tax wealthy corporations, especially these massive global monopolies that are just flush with cash. Like, like I said before, some of them have more money than entire countries. Like we need to appropriately tax them. We need to appropriately tax wealthy individuals as well. But frankly, they're kind of at the bottom of the list for where this money could come from. Mm -hmm. We can redirect money from 
entities that are overfunded, like the military or the um, criminal justice system, a lot of money can be either redirected or collected through taxation. Do you want to stand out from the crowd with your content? Come discover how to market yourself as an expert, as a change maker, as a positive influence on other people's lives. With the Exponential Marketing Club, you will learn the ins and outs of content marketing that makes a difference in the world. Visit sallyhendrick.com forward slash club. The other thing is like the government can... The government can pay for things when it wants to as well. You know, they control, the federal government controls the treasury. So like if they want to fund something, they can figure out a way to do it. We already have universal programs in this country. We have um, Medicaid, <laughs> you know, right. like that's a universal program. When you get old, you are guaranteed to have that, right? And everybody has it. There's no stipulations for that, right? Um, it's just a certain age but everyone is guaranteed that once they, they hit that age, right? So, um, you know, public schools are a universal program. Um, so like, it's very possible for the government to like fund a universal program. Um, I think the biggest positive effects that a universal basic income can have is that, yes, like, like you said before, it prevents people from falling into poverty, right? And that's like the main, the main motivation, right? And goal, right. right. No one would necessarily be unhoused. No one would necessarily, you know, have to live in poverty. But it also can have these other really interesting effects, which have been proven in some of the basic income trials that have been done, which I'll, which I can talk about more too. Mm -hmm. That things, things that you might not necessarily think of right away. Things like imagine if a woman is in an abusive marriage and they're staying in that marriage because they know if they leave, like they won't have a job or like they won't be able to enter the workforce or they won't be able to take care of themselves, right? Like something like a universal basic income can allow someone in like an abusive relationship to leave. It can allow someone with disabilities to like get stability. It can allow, it can allow, it has all these other like effects of like that we don't even think about that just, you know, money determines so many things in our lives and it would if we weren't worried about it in terms of survival, it would really free up um, people in a lot of interesting ways. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of an overview. <laughs> hopefully that hopefully that helps give people a place to start thinking about the idea. So as far as like the trials that you were talking about, is, is that the only examples of this actually happening or are there countries doing this now? So this has never been done. And that's okay. an important thing to know about it. Like a universal basic income, like the one that I'm describing has never yeah. been done. And that's okay. part of why I think it's exciting because we have no idea how powerful the effects of it could be. Um, there have been like what I consider like kind of like micro versions of this that mm -hmm. don't have all the elements. So like, for example, in Spain right now, they have the ingreso vital, which is basically if you don't make enough, if you don't, uh, if you have a low enough income, it's means tested. So if you have a low enough income or you don't have a job, you get this ingreso vital. So it's basically like a really robust unemployment system. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's great. But, you know, it's, it, it is means tested. So like you have to make less than a certain amount of money and you have to apply for it. Um, but, you know, that has been a very powerful force in Spain. Um, in the U.S., there have been a lot of pilots. One of the most like famous ones came out of Stockton, California. The mayor there, Michael Tubbs, he piloted this basic income program in Stockton and collected data and all this like incredible data started coming out that basic income helped people to get full-time jobs at a higher rate. Um, people used the money to help their families to like, like, you know, there's a, there's a lot of like myths and misconceptions that like, you know, come from a history of racism and classism that like, if you give people money, they're just going to spend it on like stupid stuff. And it turns out that they don't, they like spend it on what they need. <laughs> or maybe they do spend it on some stupid stuff and like, that's okay. Like overall, like, you know, 
people were spending money in ways that they needed it. They, they, like I said, they cut their, they got themselves out of debt. They helped their family. They were able to take time off from their current job so they could look for like a better job. It was like, you know, all these like positive things that came out of it. And Michael Tubbs then uh, founded this group called the Mayors for Guaranteed Income. And okay. they're an incredible group. I would recommend anyone listening who wants to learn more to check out their website. It's a group of mayors all around the country. There might be a mayor near you who's part of this group. And they're all dedicated to either piloting or um, implementing a, a guaranteed income program in their city. Um, and yeah, like I talked about on my TikTok, like California recently announced a program where they're gonna be giving a guaranteed income to anyone who has aged out of the foster care system and anyone who is a parent. So I think all of these are great. I just think, you know, they're still, they're still usually means tested. So like, they're still like, you have to be a certain um, income level or in a certain uh, demographic group to qualify for, for the payments. And part of the reason I don't like that is because it draws lines around people. It can okay. lead to stigma. Um, and it's also like logistically difficult to manage. Um, so, and, and yeah, those programs are often easier to get rid of too, <laughs> like programs that help people who are living in poverty, as opposed to like, you know, like it's really hard to get rid of um, social security. It's really hard to get rid of Medicare because those are really strong, like universal programs that everybody gets. And imagine, imagine if a president like got rid of one of those, like people would flip, right? You know, so it's like the, if you give the income to everyone, it's also just like a more uh, durable program. So yeah, that's, I think the, the pilots are awesome because they're providing a ton of data for us. Um, and, you know, in a few years, we'll have a lot of data in the U.S. of how these things are working. I mean, there's been data in other places. Canada has done experiments. India has done experiments. But, you know, I think it's useful to see data right here in the U.S. Do you have a dog? Learn Unleashed Potential Dog Training Secrets with Duke Ferguson. This free video series will get you pro training tips so you can get your dog's attention, eliminate behavioral problems, and enhance your relationship in just 20 minutes a day. Sign up at sallyhendrick.com forward slash dog training. So I'm really curious about some of the other things that I've seen on your TikTok as well. And one of them was this insulin program where somebody was, they were like, we're just going to make it ourselves. What is that about? <laughs> so it's the Open Insulin Project. I just learned about this recently. Um, they are a nonprofit and they're a group of people that basically they call themselves biohackers because basically what they're doing is like, they're not a formal lab. They're not like a pharma company. They're just a small group of people and they're trying to figure out how to make insulin so that they can give it to people, I think for free, <laughs> either for free or like very low cost. Um, that's their goal. And some of the founders have diabetes. So, you know, I think they're looking at a failing system that like doesn't provide people with affordable access to this like vital life-saving drug and they're like we're gonna see if we can just you know do it on our own they're they're in silicon valley you know so they have like some silicon valley money being you know funded mm -hmm. into it but um even if they succeed like they'll only be able to make so much because they're a very small group but i think what they're doing is cool and it like you know, that's a really serious problem that obviously needs to be addressed. And I really, I'm, I'm rooting for them. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. I mean, I could see them easily, you know, launching some sort of pilot program, but I guess there are going to be certain regulations that they have to pass. Cause I mean, you can't just hand out drugs without some sort of oversight, I guess. Totally. Um, and, but then once they figure that out, it's not like they don't have the formula to have this pop up everywhere. That's, that's the thing. I'm like, if somebody can like post the formula somewhere and make it available, like it reminds me of, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Dallas Buyers Club. <laughs> it was like no. all about um, AIDS drugs. 
that like were illegal in the US for a long time, but they weren't illegal in Mexico. So um, Matthew McConaughey's character like goes to Mexico and imports the drug into the US. Um, I believe I'm summarizing that correctly, but the point is like, you know, there's like, it's kind of like gorilla medicine, you know, like if I had diabetes and I couldn't afford insulin, like I would be willing to like risk, you know, FDA approval to like take something if it was gonna like save me, you know? So I'm, I'm all for people like taking matters into their own hands especially when it's a matter of life and death. Yeah, well, and aren't we all? I mean, some people yeah. will have complaints about things like that, but, um, but when, you're, when they're in that situation, you can't really tell what someone's going to do unless they're faced with it, right? Right, right, exactly. So without getting too deep into the healthcare side of things, because we could talk about that for over three episodes or five, <laughs> and even for that matter, um, I wanted to go back into the money part of it and talk a little bit about the public banking system and what that is. I know there's a lot of effort and research and talk around that. I've seen several of the videos that you've posted on TikTok around it. Who are the people involved in this and, and what are they talking about? So it's actually a pretty cool moment for public banking because they just had a hearing um in congress to like talk about public banking and they brought in like a panel of experts and they all testified um and i posted some clips from that on my tiktok um mm -hmm. but like that's very exciting because it's like at the federal level will it go anywhere i don't know but <laughs> the fact that they were talking about it and that they even like brought this up at the federal level is i think is really cool um so public banking is like a really old idea um, public banking used to exist in this country in a more robust way. Um, there used to be um, a more robust like statewide public bank system. So a lot of states had their own public banks. Um, there have been public bank systems around the world. A lot of countries have postal bank services where you can do your banking through the post office, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, the real difference between a public bank and what we would think of as like a commercial bank or a corporate bank, like a Bank of America or a Chase, um, is that like a Bank of America or a Chase is very profit motivated. They're basically like an investment bank plus a regular bank. <laughs> Years ago, there was this um, rule called Glass-Steagall, which I think I'm going to make a video about soon. There was, uh, it was law in the US um, called like the Glass-Steagall policy or whatever that said that like co commercial banks couldn't also be investment banks. You had to separate those two things because like an investment bank is a bank that's trying to make money in the stock market. They're trying to invest and they're trying to make lots of money, right? That's their goal. A, a commercial bank in theory is supposed to serve the people who have their money in the bank, right? It's supposed to keep it safe, help it grow, give people loans, whatever. So if you allow a bank to also be an investment bank, then it uses people's money to invest, right? And, and their goal, again, is to make as much money as they can on the stock market. Commercial banks also hold money for cities, which I think is wild, like, like New York City or LA or whatever, like all, those, all the major cities in the US, that's like municipal money municipalities, they have their money in commercial banks. And those banks are also investment banks. So basically like a Bank of America will take New York City's money, it will take like regular old people's money and it will invest it in the stock market to make as much money as possible. And when you're investing in the stock market to make as much money as possible, you're gonna invest in terrible things like fossil fuel industry and, and, and the prison industrial complex, whatever it might be, you know? Um, so yeah, so that Glass-Steagall policy I was talking about was overturned during like the Clinton administration, I think. So that meant that like commercial banks were just investment banks now. And we don't really have banks anymore that are just meant to serve the people who have their money in them. And public banks are just that because public banks are run through the state or through a city and they don't have the same profit motive. So they're, and, they, and you can have like a board that's made of like local community members, you know, like you could be on, on your 
city's board for the bank, you mm -hmm. know, to help make decisions and stuff. You know, I, I've, if you have your money in Chase, right, you can't just walk into Chase headquarters and say, you know, I think you shouldn't have overdraft fees anymore, <laughs> you know, but like yeah. if you were a member of your local city bank board, you know, you could help make decisions like that. And I'm guessing that you would say we shouldn't have overdraft fees, you know, and you're more likely to have your voice heard because it's a smaller public bank. So th there's not all these shareholders that are going to benefit from what you're doing. You know what I mean? Turn what you know into what you do. Join the platform with the most ways to monetize what you know, whether it's online courses, coaching, memberships, podcasts, newsletters, communities, or more. Kajabi gives you all the tools you need to build, market, and sell it with just a few clicks. Sign up at sallyhendrick.com forward slash Kajabi. That's K-A-J-A-B-I. So on the flip side of this, because this is where you're going to get the pushback, right? You've got corporations, you've got uh, people who are heavily invested in the stock market, you've got people that currently money is power, right? Money is mm -hmm. where money makes the decisions for us. So on the flip side, you've got people who are heavily invested in the current system. So if there were more socialized, more publicized systems rolled out, such as public banking or, um, you know, the universal basic health care or other things, mm -hmm. what people that's will lose to, money. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you have people, people are going to lose money. And those people have really loud mouthpieces. They, uh, <laughs> they line the pockets of the politicians and they line the pockets. Totally of the media companies. So it's a beast to fight. Yeah. Um, so how do you appease everyone in this in some way? I mean, for me personally, when I have extra, I give it away. When I have extra, I'll take a nice trip, but then I'll give, you know, a piece away as well. And so, you know, there's always that mentality of like, how do you strike a balance between this balanced system versus totally public or totally like an oligarchy <laughs> yeah yeah that's and that's that's the question right um yeah i think that first of all i think it's really important for me to think about like i don't disparage anyone for participating in the current system we all are right i get my packages from amazon you know i i participate in the philanthropy system like you do you know I like we, we're all participating in the current system because that's the current system that's available to us and we have to mm -hmm. you know do do our best to survive and thrive in the current system so I don't disparage any, anyone for participating in the current system to an extent to an extent um so I think that's one way to like appeal to everyone because I sincerely believe that I'm like I, I think that people people respond to the system that exists so I don't disparage people for participating in the system. The other thing I think about is like, yes, a lot of people would lose money with all of these policies and that's why they're against them. But like, who's losing the money? Like the people that should be losing the money because this money needs to be redistributed in some way. And all of these things are ways to redistribute the money. I think the emotional appeal needs to be, and I don't know that this will necessarily work, but I, clearly it hasn't in like hundreds of years. But the emotional appeal, if there is one to be made, is that everyone sees themselves as living in their own like financial individual story. Like you think of your finances as your own story, right? Like, you know, you're working hard and you're making money or you're doing whatever. You think of that as your own individual financial story in a little vacuum. When in reality, like everyone's finances are interconnected. And when people have a lot, that means that other people like don't have a lot and like all these systems affect each other. So like, you know, a pharma company making millions of dollars off of XYZ means that there are other people in the country and the world that are suffering. Um, so it's like, I think helping people to see the connection that these things aren't in isolation. But I, I think you're right. I don't think that an emotional appeal will work on a lot of people, especially like the ultra wealthy, because this is their life and this is their identity. 
and they've played the game and they've played it well and they've won, right? So like, they're not, they're not gonna be willing to give that up. And that's why I think the federal government, I'm not trying to win over those people. I'm trying to win over the federal government because the federal government is the only entity that's powerful enough to make these changes. And I know that the corporations are like controlling most of the federal government. And that's the part I think we need to deal with. But the reason I don't give up on the government is because like the government is the only entity that's powerful enough financially and logistically to like stand up to corporations. Like there are lots of other ways we can stand up to corporations like strong unions, but there's nothing that has the same power, especially like the United States government. Like if, if the United States wanted to do any of these things, they could. And you can't say that about every country. The United States is incredibly wealthy and powerful as it, all they need to do is decide to flip some of these switches and it could happen. And it's not unprecedented because there have been times in the past where presidents have made decisions to really bolster social services in this country. And we also see there are lots of countries out there that have really strong social systems. Um, you know, it's really hard to look at a country like Norway, which I think is similar to the US in a lot of ways because it's extremely wealthy. Um, and they have like really robust a, a, a robust welfare state of a really strong social services for the people in the country. So this is not like an impossible thing. And, you know, I, but yeah, that's the question. I don't know how we make this happen, but I, I think that like learning about the solutions and seeing like how possible and powerful they are is like what I'm focusing on right now. Well, I like the fact that you're focusing on it and focusing forward with it because a lot of times you'll talk to people that are, maybe they are highly educated and they are in corporations and they are in management and above like directorships and so forth. And they're making really good money. And they tend to look at it as you're going to take my money away and give it to someone who's only making this much money per month and what have you. And it's like, wait a second, that's not really the appeal here, the appeal here is not to take it away from you as this person who's worked really hard and created, you know, maybe they're really intelligent and they feel like they should make more money because they're actually doing things to create efficiencies and make changes in the world that are positive. And so they think that they deserve more in that, that realm. But I, I have a hard time appealing to people that think that other people would be taking away from them. Yeah. But I think that when, and when everybody has, when everybody's basic needs are met and I mean, basic needs, you're not talking about $10,000 a month income for people. We're talking right. about a little bit, right. And these programs that, that help erase a lot of the poverty and the destitution that we have, I think people in that realm just really do not even understand that yeah. this world exists for yes. so many more people than they yes. actually realize, which brings us right back to the very beginning of our discussion. When you talked about, this is where I grew up and I was in this little bubble here. Yep. Yes. My world. <laughs> yes. A thousand percent. Yes. I'm the same way. I grew up in a wealthier home in this, in the deep South. Would you rather work or would you rather play? If we're going to go through all of this business building stuff, it better be for something that we love doing, right? Take a moment to do this quick life purpose challenge to discover what makes you truly happy. It's free. Visit sallyhendrick.com forward slash life purpose. I didn't really understand what it meant. This is something that that really stuck out to me. I helped someone one time. I said, look, I'm going to come and help you. It was with a fitness and a, a, a nutrition program. And I said, I'm going to come and help you. I'm going to take you to the grocery store and we're going to choose different things. And then we're going to go to your house and we're going to cook and we're going to make these things for the week. And I'm going to teach you, you know, how to, you know, come into some sort of healthier eating program. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to sit down and cry because I got to the house and found out that the stove didn't work and the refrigerator was fine, but there yeah. was a tiny little microwave that barely worked. 
and she didn't own any pots and pans. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, you've got these flimsy paper plates in here and a stack of ramen and cans of whatever. And that was it. Right. And then all of a sudden I realized, wow, I have been so blind right. to the real situation. Right. And then I turn around and there's a washing board. Right. And those are, those are the moments that you kind of have to have. Like you can hear all the statistics from far away, but you kind of yeah. have to have a personal meaningful experience for it to really like, for you to really process it. Um, yeah. You know, and like in those situations too, like the, the only way that we can respond in our current system is through the philanthropy model, right? Like the only way we can respond is by being charitable, mm -hmm. like individual people, like choosing to help individual people. When I think that that should be the responsibility of the government, the government should be ensuring that everyone is okay. Um, I think in terms of like speaking to the people who are afraid of having their money taken away from them, the things that I would say to them is like, first of all, that's why I think that that's what I think is part of the appeal of universal programs because universal programs, everybody gets it. Like if you're like, are, Oh, you're, you're mad that someone who's living in poverty is getting $2,000 a month through universal basic income. Well, guess what? You're going to get it too. Mm -hmm. Are you still mad? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, are you, Oh, you're mad that like we have universal healthcare now and like, you know, uh, another state far away from you is going to have like really great accessible doctors and programs all the time. You're going to have it too. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like everybody gets it. It's not just like taking money from the rich and giving it to the poor. It's, it's redistributing the money for everybody. So I think that's part of it. And also I would say to that person, you know, people are always like, Oh, they're taking my money away. Well, it's like, are you okay with philanthropy? Because those people usually are right. Those big corporations or very wealthy people usually donate lots of money annually to various causes. And it's like, how is this different? Your money's just being redirected in a more efficient and effective way than you cherry picking what you want to donate to. And that's, um, that's something I also have a problem with is the cherry picking. I was having a conversation with a, a mother who, um, this was back when COVID was starting last fall before school was about to open again. And, um, and I had brought attention to something that was going on with a, um, with a school system that basically a lot of people had moved away from. It was like a, I could go into it forever, but I won't, but it was like this white flight situation all yeah. over again, but from one small town to another in the South. And it was a situation where the school, school system in this area was just completely left behind by people who were making money. And the disparity between the two communities was like median income of 30,000 in the town left behind and median income of 65,000 in the town five minutes away. Yeah. Wow. And there was a whole different school system and everything. And it was just really difficult. And I was like, you know, if anybody wants to give any money towards this, we're trying to raise awareness and blah, blah, blah. And somebody was like, oh, we already give to the school. And I'm like, yeah, yes. you probably give to your grandchild's <laughs> school for right. the people, the poorest people in that school. But I don't think you understand the situation five minutes down the road where the lunch program was 98% of the kids were on the free lunch program and you only had 15% at the other school. I'm like, I don't think you get it at all. Right. And why, and why should they get it? And why should you have to explain it to them? <laughs> it should yeah, just, it should just it be tough. that all the schools get equitable funding from the government. Yeah. And they don't because a lot of that's funded by property tax. Right. Do you want to stand out from the crowd with your content? Come discover how to market yourself as an expert, as a change maker, as a positive influence on other people's lives. With the Exponential Marketing Club, you will learn the ins and outs of content marketing that makes a difference in the world. Visit sallyhendrick.com forward slash club.
Well, before we go, the last thing I always like to end on every talk with is what is your hope for the future now that we are in the middle of this major shift that's happening around the country, around the world, COVID has kind of created this, you know, this, I don't know, this low simmer that's <laughs> probably creating a, a whole new, a whole new thing when we get, get past this. What's your hope for what's to come out of this? So I think one of the really positive things that has come out of this is like people like me, people like you, and countless, countless other people have become really interested in learning about what's going on and learning about solutions. And that is huge. That cannot be denied. And I think especially like the younger generation is like, <laughs> very interested and educated about these things, certainly in a way that I never was. I grew up in like the comfort of the wealthy white 90s. And like, I, I have had the privilege of like not even knowing anything about politics and economics for most of my life until recently. So I think that like the fact that a lot of people are being catapulted into like awareness mm -hmm. is incredible. Um, so I think that's awesome. And that in itself needs to be celebrated. On a practical level for like the future of like the United States, um, I hope that we can get universal healthcare. I think for me, like that's the, the highest priority. And I think it's also like the most viable of all of like the radical financial and like, um, social programs that I advocate for. Um, I think the pandemic was like a moment where we like almost got it, <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't the right moment. But I think that, I think that if there's like another moment where the stars are aligned politically, logistically, whatever, um, it could happen. And so I'm really like crossing my fingers for universal healthcare. Um, I think and, it'll come in waves. And, mm -hmm. and I think that, that the piece of that, that where it will start will be a lowering of the age for Medicare. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I hope so too, because I'm actually getting close to <laughs> what, that, what that lowered age might be. There you go. And I would love to be able to, especially when my husband reaches, like if it's 55, he'll be 55 next year. And that would be amazing if he could start right. on Medicare. Um, it would certainly free up because because you you start hitting your fifties and you start needing it, yeah, a lot more. And we've been paying out the wazoo for years for our coverage, and the coverage is not all that great of coverage. So yeah, you know, it's a big scam. <laughs> yeah, it, it it kind of is. You know, you got to have like that that horrific moment for it to be, um, you know, to be fair. But, and then that's not fair, so. <laughs> yeah, and imagine if you're like not able-bodied or if you have chronic illness or, you know. Yeah, it's impossible. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I think you're right about the waves though. I think you're right. Like it might be chipped away at in different ways. Um, like we see like the child tax credit that just was yeah. implemented, like that's like a small win, you know? So yeah, I hope that, I also, I don't think electoral politics is the whole answer, but I do think, think it's good that like more and more representatives are supporting more progressive ideas. So I think there's, there's hope in that too. Yeah, the voting, the voting, the gerrymandering, the electoral college, and maybe lowering the age for Medicare, those would be steps in the right direction. It would certainly help to, you know, maybe add some patches to what the ACA was trying to start doing, but didn't really get there. Um, so yeah, hopefully we're moving in the right direction. So anything else you want to add before we go? Um, I guess I'll just give like a little disclaimer, like a lot of times, so because I talk about financial things a lot, a lot of times like like, I just want to say like, I'm not an economist <laughs> and I am not a CPA. I'm not an estate planner, you know, like I don't, I, I took one economics course in college and that was like 12 years ago. So like, you know, everything that I have learned has been like self-educating. And I also know a lot of people that work in finance. So like, I'll ask my friends and, you know, people that I know in that field, 
Also, I want to shout out my husband because he's been like interested in leftist um, ideas for like longer than I have. And that's, that's part of why we got along when we met. Um, and, you know, he's kind of like a consultant for my account a lot of the time. Like I'll, you know, ask him for feedback on a video or like he might inspire me with a topic because he's mm -hmm. like very interested in these things as well. So it's like, you know, I get my information from like doing research, reading books, reading articles, um, and, and talking to people in my real life that I know are like knowledgeable in certain areas when I, when I feel like I don't know enough. Um, so yeah, so I just really appreciate like everybody who follows me for being like on that journey with me of like learning. And um, I always, I always cite sources if I'm like presenting new information in the comments because I feel like that's really important. Um, and yeah, I hope like if you're interested in this stuff and like talking about it, I hope you'll, you'll jump on board <laughs> yeah, with the money is stupid train. <laughs> money, money is stupid train. That's good. And congratulations on 10,000 followers. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the numbers, they're kind of arbitrary. I mean, I have, there are accounts that I love that have like 2000 followers or less, there are accounts that I hate that have a million followers. You know, like there's a lot going on behind the scenes oh, yeah, TikTok yeah. that we don't know. So I don't want to take like total credit for it, but but thank you. I'm glad that like, you know, I'm glad that like people want to listen to what I have to say. I have my virtual, my parasocial community. And like, it's like, like meeting you is like really awesome. Like, and we never would have met without that um, outreach, you know? So thank you. I'm grateful for it. <laughs> Well, thank you. And I'm so glad that you responded in kind. And that's it today for the Shout Your Cause episode of this week. Join us next time and listen to everything we've got. Subscribe and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening today. My name is Sally Hendrick. Be sure to visit our website for show notes and more information on how you can inspire others. If you would like to contribute content to our magazine, please apply on our website at shoutyourcause.com.